says, where right liberty is living souls. Now, I got to thinking about this verse, and I wondered, so does winning souls make you wise, or does wisdom help you win souls? And I thought about it. If, if the verse had said, he who saves money is wise, I would have understood that the wisdom I have helps me to save money. I believe that when the Bible says, he who wins souls is wise, that the Bible is encouraging us that as our wisdom grows, so will our impact in winning souls. The good news is James 1.15 tells us, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And, and then the scripture goes on to promise that he'll give us wisdom. I want to talk about winning souls. Now, here's the thing. When I say to someone, we're going to talk about, in fact, I, I'm guilty of thinking this. If someone says, we're going to talk about how to win souls, you know what I expect? I expect to be given a logical uh, set of words. What are the magic words I can tell someone that will convince them to get saved? You know, are you going to give me a track? Do I have to, what do I have to memorize? What am I going to say that is going to win souls? But let's go back and look at that verse again. In the other translation, it said, where right living bears its fruit. The tree of life grows up and the wise man's reward is living souls. Matthew chapter 10, 16 says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. It is more how we live our life that will win souls than the words we use. It is more how I live in front of what people see me doing when I don't appear to be trying to win their soul that's going to win their soul than when I happen to be articulating the argument pro-salvation. We're to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. The Bible doesn't tell us to overpower people we do have power. The Bible says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. But the recipe that the scripture gives us for winning people over is to apply wisdom to the way that we live our life in front of them. It says to be as wise as serpents. When I lived in in Mexico, I loved going on hikes in the mountains. And more than once, I came across rattlesnakes. And what was interesting, I mean, rattlesnakes have this reputation for being so scary and dangerous. They were always as cautious, if not more, than me. They would curl up, wrap around, protect their body. They would sit back and wait. They didn't just, 
you know, jump at me. If you've ever been around like a, a, an angry dog or something that'll just come at, no, that's not what snakes do. They, they wait for the right moment. And if you come and give them the opportunity, yeah, they'll strike. But they're cautious and patient. I want to talk about the different things that we do. I want to, to examine our lives to see where and how we can apply biblical wisdom and increase the likelihood that we would win souls. How many of you would like to win someone to Christ? You know, and man, we think, okay, I, but I don't know the thing to say. Here's the deal. The good news is there isn't a magic phrase. I think I shared this with you guys before. I remember going to, hearing for the first time Billy Graham preach, and I expected him to have this perfectly polished, articulate argument. But it wasn't the case. Billy Graham has won arguably some of the most souls to the kingdom by living right for years and years and years and being available and giving God the opportunity to anoint him as he just went out and was consistent. So Ecclesiastes 5.3. I'm going to start with three things that destroy our witness. Foolish things that we can do that turn people off to the gospel. Ecclesiastes 5.3 says, And a fool's voice is known by his many words. <laughs> the, the scripture tells us the exact opposite. Don't, don't go looking to, to argue your way into their heart. In fact, if you are saying a lot, there's a high probability that you're not getting their point across. If people don't respect you, they won't respect the God that you serve. I don't need a raise of hands, and please don't look at that person if they're here today, but how many of you have ever been around an oversharer? You met them three minutes ago, and they are just telling you, you know, intimate details about their life. And their struggles. And you're just like, this is odd. Why? Because that's, it's not, they're just going and going. They're just blurting. And we recognize that's not, that's not how we gain respect. You don't usually grow in respect for someone who does not stop talking. Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. It's amazing how much impact we have. I, I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. I went to Bible school. I attended a Christian college. I served for five years as a missionary overseas. I came back. I worked as a pastor. And I had not had a lot of opportunities to work 
at that time in my life in a totally secular environment. A little later, I got a job working in the finance department of a large company. Completely a secular workplace. And I was excited. I was excited. But I remember trying to be intentional about just living a life and not oversharing. And I, I, I will never forget, I didn't, I didn't know if I was getting through. And there was a particular fellow who worked with us. Um, I, for lack of a better way, famous for his immorality. And obviously not following biblical principles. We'll just leave it at that much. And someone close to him died. And he came to me, not going to church, not going anywhere. He says, would you do the funeral? And I realized only then the witness that had worked all that time. When he came and I got to talk with him and learn what God had been trying to do in his life as he told me his story and I realize it wasn't my words. It was just listening and being a godly example and, and being consistent. We want to be a good listener. Mastering the, learn, the, the art of listening is, is a key part in winning people to the Lord. Second thing that destroys our witness, Proverbs 12, 16 says, a fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. Proverbs, well, before I get to the next verse, the Bible also says that the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God, period. We need to understand something. Losing your temper is never God's strategy to bring about change. Never. Never. Many times we, we, we say, well, I'm, I, I lost my temper. When the truth is, we believed a lie that displaying our anger would bring about a positive impact. They won't know I'm serious unless I. If I do this, they'll stop arguing with me because they'll, I'll raise my voice high enough that, that it won't, they won't come back against me. Until we recognize what the scripture tells us and realize that never, is man's wrath the path to God's righteousness. He says, no, when we lose our temper, we lose credibility. We lose progress. Many of us, we don't even realize how many times 
we have made a significant impact in somebody's perception of our us, therefore God. And then we threw it away by just not caring to control our temper. It causes a greater loss of respect than we realize. And wisdom, the Bible says, a fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. If we are applying wisdom to our lives, then we will use restraint. And when we do that, we are strengthening our witness as a Christian. Proverbs 21.20 says, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. All he has. Notice, it talks about all that he has, not just all that he gets. An interesting thing is, our use, listen, my management of money can win someone to God. Have you ever thought about that? Your choices, the way that you live your life in every area is part of your testimony. The Bible says that the wise man has stores of choice food. He, he is wise and intentional about saving. How do we spend what we have? There's, there is nothing wrong with using money. The Bible, this is interesting. We, we remember the scripture that says the love of money is the root of all evil. But most of us remember that scripture wrongly. Most of us think money is the root of all evil. But that's, that's not what it said. It didn't say money was the root of all evil. It said the love of money is the root of all evil. Another verse in Ecclesiastes says that money is the answer to everything under the sun. Now, under the sun being the key phrase there, talking about in, in the world, looking at things naturally, money. You know what? The kingdom of God uses money to function. Money is not the root of all evil. It is the love of money. The Bible didn't say you can't have money and serve God. It said you can't serve money and serve God at the same time. Our behavior with finances is, is impactful. What do, we, what do we buy? How do we spend our finances? As a, as a proportion, you know, there are things you can spend your money on you never get a return from. You know, you go out to eat, that was delicious. Then it's gone. And whether you spent three bucks off the dollar menu or went someplace where it was $400 a plate, it all ends up the same. And then it's gone. And so is the money. But there are purchases you can make that don't disappear. You can invest your money. And you don't have to be a millionaire to do that. In fact, right now, 
If you've been watching the news and you've been seeing how the economy has been rallying and all of this stuff, there are financial wizards writing articles about how investment has changed. Because whereas 25 years ago, a vast portion of investment was being done through professionals. Today, it's being done on your phone by you. So many people are learning that they can invest. Now, I'm not just saying go out there and willy-nilly start by. Be wise about how you invest. But understand, we have the opportunity to, to be prudent with our finances. We can do things. I remember, I remember one time in particular, back in, I think it was 2008, there was a big hubbub about how so many toys had lead in it. Anybody remember that big shebang? Toys had lead and then the plastic toys had toxins and the paint on toys had toxins and all of that. And so I came across a $15 wooden dinosaur made from a two-by-four. And I was like, that is, like, too much. Too much. I'm not going to spend $15 to give all of my guys. I had, my kids were, like, oh, what, at that time, 2008, I think that was about when I had, like, four kids under four. And it's like, I'm not going to pay $15 per toy. So, I went to Harbor Freight, and I bought a $70 saw, and I started making toys. This is, you've got the picture of, of some of the toys made? Those were the little wooden toys that I made. And for $70, I filled my kid's toy box with toys. And then friends started hearing about it, and they said, well, can, can we buy some? Oh, sure, I'll, you know. I, I wasn't going to gouge them for $15 a toy, but I was like, $4.99 whatever, I can do that. Did that. Someone says, you should sell these. I'm like, who's going to buy these? Put them on Etsy. I'm like, what's an Etsy? <laughs> well, it's an online marketplace for homemade things. I put them on there. Over the next 10 years, I made $27,000 selling those little toys. Now, it was $5 at a time, staying up for an hour after the kids went to bed. Later, got too busy, I shut it down, but for years, that was just, that was $70 well spent that had a return. I wore that saw out and had to, to buy another one, but I had enough from there. I'm not telling everyone, you guys to go out, make, just consider how some purchases just have disappeared and other purchases invest and have a return. Side note, over. God wants to use models. The Bible says that he told Abraham that he would make him a nation and bless the world through him. It's interesting where Israel is located. 
Can you throw that map up for a second? Israel is right here. Okay? This right here is a giant desert. Very difficult. Up, up there, I can't quite reach high enough, is where all the cities, all those names. This is an city of the ancient, uh, a map of the ancient world. You can see where all the cities are at. That's where the people would travel through. And then if you went up to the left, you got up into Europe. Israel is located in a place that was later referred to as the crossroads of the world. Anybody who came from Asia towards Europe came relatively close to Israel. Anyone who went from Asia to Africa went through Israel. Anyone from Africa to Europe went through Israel. Europe to Africa through Israel. Europe to Asia past Israel. All of that area was ideal. <laughs> we, we went to a Starbucks the other day, my wife and I, and I remember I, I said to her, this is a an amazing location. She's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, everybody who comes through Jenison is pinched by the Grand River and the lack of bridges, and they have to come through this one little area. And they pass that Starbucks. It's only been open for a couple of months, but there's a line just around it all the time. Because they situated themselves where they would be seen and noticed. God put Israel where they would be seen and noticed. Here's another thought to consider. God put Israel there. And then, it's interesting, we look back, and I've shared this once before, but I'm going to take a quick time to look at this if you're, if you're listening for the first time or if you missed that other message. But throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament is more a missionary story than we realize. Because the stories that we remember and had other meanings, over and over, God shows us that they also were designed to be examples to others. When we hear the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we think about the, the lesson of how God taught someone that he's there to protect us and that if you're faithful to God, God will be faithful to you. But you know what? The scripture also says that the whole world was told the story. Remember the king, after all of this happened, he sent out an edict to be read in, in the known empire telling everyone about God. When Joshua crossed the Jordan and God peeled back the water, it says in Joshua chapter 4, verse 23, it says, For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until he had crossed over, and the Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea. And when it dried up before us, we all crossed over. Now, why did he do that? Well, he did that to show a miracle to his people, to let them know that he was behind them. He did that logistically so that they could cross the Red Sea and the Jordan. But the scripture literally tells us in verse 24, it says, He did this so that all peoples of the earth might know the hand of the Lord is powerful. The miracles throughout the Old Testament were done to show people God's power. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. And that's not a fear of be afraid, but it's a fear of reverence. He said, I want people to see and know what I'm like. 
So he put Israel right in the crossroads of the world. And then he did miracles in their lives. And was it because he only cared about Israel? No. The Bible is clear. He was blessing Israel as an example for others, desiring the entire world to be blessed through them. David and Goliath, we know that story. What was the lesson we learned from David and Goliath? Well, that no one is too young to be used by God and that if you have faith, God can use you and, and no challenge is, is too big and don't underestimate what God can do through the little guy. So many different lessons. But what it says in 1 Samuel 17, 47, it says, And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear, but that the Lord saves. God's description of the goal of the story of David and Goliath was so that the world would hear and know God. Israel was placed in the crossroads of the world so that all the people that came by would know, would see, would hear, would take notice. Why do you think you are placed where you are? Has God changed his strategy now? It's interesting when, when people hear about what God is doing in the lives of a Christian and someone gets excited and they start talking about the blessing that they have received and all of that. Some people, and often it's Christians who line up and say, well, well, you don't, you don't want to talk about that. I mean, we don't want people to think that, that you're serving God to be blessed. Don't, don't, don't tell them that. And I say, you don't understand the way God works. Throughout Scripture, he blessed Abraham. Abraham was ridiculously blessed. Like, kings and nations were jealous of him. Now, was it because God had, had a favorite and just wanted to bless him and wanted everyone else to be jealous? No. He put... Abraham up as an example and said, I want other people to desire to know his God. God has put you in the place that you are because he wants you to be an example of what God does in the lives of people who love and serve him. You are an example. When you live a godly life in front of others. That is a blessing to them. God wants what he did with Israel as an example to the surrounding nations. Now he wants to do with us as individuals. It is God's desire that your friends, co-workers, and neighbors would look at you and say, I want a marriage like that. I would like kids like that. I want to handle difficulty like that. When difficult situations arise, I want to go through them like that. I want happiness like that. 
even I want finances like that. You can win, you can't win people to Christ until you win them to yourself. If you look at television, the infomercials, what catches our attention? I'm going to cut this nail with this knife and then I'm going to cut through this tomato. I'm going to, you know, blend this cell phone with this. And then I'm going to make soup. We watch those things and, and we're inspired when we see examples. God, marketing people know this. Do we think they're smarter than God? No. He desires to use us as an example. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23 says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law as without the law, not being without law towards God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might be by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. That's Paul. He says, I am intentional about how I live my life and what my testimony is like before people. And I try to live in a way that they will understand so that I can win them to Christ. We need to learn to be big enough to look at ourselves from a critical perspective and say, what do people see when they see me? We don't have to agree with them, but we have to understand how they see us. One of the primary <coughs> uh, influences the Bible says in Romans 2 verse 5 is, or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? Say that with me. The goodness of God leads to repentance. When, when people see God and his goodness, they are inspired to repent. It is not the stories of God's wrath that bring people to repentance, but it is, it is seeing what he has done in your lives. There are a lot of people who only know enough about God to hate him or be afraid. Many people have been, have misrepresented. They don't understand who God is. They go to a funeral for their friend and they hear, well, God wanted another flower in his garden, so he plucked that person out. Ah! No. 
They, they don't understand. They don't know God. This is Jesus. Acts 10, 38, it says, And how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's God. He goes around blessing and healing and being an encouragement. And you know, Jesus didn't always use the supernatural to be an impact. Do you remember the story of, of the woman at the well? He complimented her simply by being willing to take a drink from her jar because the culture of that time wouldn't have allowed that. That opened the whole door. His friendliness to that woman led to the entire village coming out and, and getting saved. You remember Zacchaeus, the rich man who climbed up in a tree? Jesus humbled himself and in, spoke to the man. You realize the way that tax collecting worked in those days. The tax collector came and told you what you owed. His pay was what he managed to get you to overpay. That's how it worked. When, when I was a, a little kid, my parents were missionaries in Mexico. They used to travel back and forth across the border. At that time, to be a border official on the Mexican side, you had to pay for the privilege of having that job. Because bribery was so commonplace that they said, why would we pay these people to stand here and collect money all day? We need a cut. It was literally how it worked. This is, now, think back. That's the guy. He's rich. You see him all the time. And how did he get rich? By overcharging you. Nobody liked Zacchaeus. But Jesus treated him with kindness and respect. That wasn't supernatural. There wasn't some miracle. Jesus didn't go in there and, and heal Zacchaeus' mother-in-law. He didn't go in there and do something miraculous. He treated Zacchaeus with kindness and respect, when everyone else did not. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. Wisdom causes influence. It gives you a position of authority and power. Be wise as serpents. Be harmless as doves. We have to win people to ourselves before we win them to God. It is the application of godly wisdom that produces the influence that brings us the opportunities. Now, I want, I want you to think about something for a second. What if, 
just each one of us was intentional about our witness, how long do you think it would take before we could win one person to the Lord? You know, a lot of times we think, you know, hey, I want to learn how to win someone to the Lord, and, and maybe by next weekend, I'll... great, I hope that you win someone to the Lord by next weekend. But realistically, how long would it take for someone to see and be affected? What if it took a year? What if it took three? But think about this for a second. If we were intentional about the example that we set, about the witness that we have, and after three years of work, we each won one person. Realize the church would double in three years? It, it sounds slow to say if you just win one person in three years. But if this church doubled every three years, wow, that would be exponential growth. That is, that is God's plan for the church. Proverbs 11.33, and he who wins souls is wise. John chapter 4, 38 says, I sent you to reap that which you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and you have entered into their labor. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed upon him because of the saying of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Here's, here's what's interesting. You may get to lead someone to Christ, and you're benefiting from her example. You realize, we don't know who will ultimately reap the harvest. It's fun. I love it on Sunday mornings when someone raises their hand and says, I want to give my life to Christ. And we may, in a silly way, we may think, oh, the pastor led someone else to the Lord. No. It was your life. It was your testimony that watered the seeds that God planted from your life in that person. We just happened to be here for the harvest. John says, other men labored and you have entered into their labor. Here in church, I would say most of the time, when someone gives their life to Christ, it was 1% what happened here on Sunday morning. It was 99% the lives of Christians around them for years. For years. I long to see us be intentional. Intentional about applying wisdom. Recognizing, playing the long game. Not getting frustrated because we didn't achieve our goal in a week or two months. But recognizing that God has called us to be an example. And you have, we have a team. And not just our congregation here. But people within the body of Christ 
all around from so many other churches. God is using them to plant seeds, to water those seeds. He is, he is sending people past you. You know, when someone comes to me and they say, you know what, my daughter, my son, I just, I want them to come to the Lord. The first thing I pray is God. Send people into their lives. Send them across other people who will show them and remind them how much God loves them. We don't even know what mother's prayer we're answering when we simply be an example, be consistent. We don't, we don't recognize the impact. Oh, when we discover it, it is so exciting to learn, but realize many of us won't. We won't even know how many lives we won until we get to heaven. And I believe that many of us are going to be thanked by total strangers. Why? Because we watered, we made a difference.